welcome to the latest in our Impact Wave podcast series, Making a Difference. I'm Karen Talamelli-Cusick, and I'm thrilled to welcome back Charles Bohm. Charles is a writer, editor, communications professional, analyzing and reporting on all levels of soccer in the U.S. and around the world. Charles just returned from Qatar, where he was covering the 2022 Men's World Cup. So thrilled to welcome you back, Charles. Karen, it's such a pleasure to be here. I uh, I, I can't believe I uh, I didn't step on any toes in the first episode. I'm I'm, I'm just so pleased to get a get an invite. Oh, uh, always you have an open invitation, Charles. It's <laughs> wonderful to welcome you back. Uh, how about if we start by um, if you could give us your initial impressions of your overall experience? Well, yeah. So um, you know, not just me, but I'm sure you know. I think you, uh, many of your colleagues, many of those listening, uh, are sort of still fresh in the afterglow of the tournament as a whole. Um, we're you know we're speaking one day after <clears throat> Sunday's championship final, which was uh, you know, even by the standards of the World Cup, an epic occasion. Two of the best, probably the best players in the world right now, locking horns. Two excellent teams. Incredible drama. Incredible spectacle. And so, uh, and you know, many people are uh, even even accounting for recency bias. Many people are ca calling this the best final ever. Some people consider it the best World Cup ever. Uh, and I think um, I'm sort of, uh, I, I guess I'm fortunate that I've had two different experiences. I, I had an on-site experience of the World Cup, um, not as a fan per se, but I mean, a fan of the game. I, I, I covered a number of games there on, on in person, and then I, I was able to go to games that I. Uh, didn't have to work, so um, you know, I was taking things in slightly more of a fan perspective. And then I came home <clears throat> after the uh, or during the uh, round of 16, and was able to sort of consume the the event as a, you know a television um, fan and a you know a, a television viewer and a, and a fan at home. So um, so for me, I think it's um, it shows the power of the sport, shows the power of the tournament. Um, the product is so irresistible. It's so compelling. And I do think it's, uh, it was particularly engaging this year and, and um, drew in a lot of new fans. You know, when you hear from people like uh, my 80 something year old mother uh, and you know, how, <laughs> how many people in her life, including her um, and people her age were captivated by it. I mean, it's really striking. Um, and I think the, the sort of modern, uh, at least in the United States, and I think it applies probably in many places around the world. Um, the World Cup is this sort of high watermark that we get every three or four years um, where, you know, you catch a lot of casuals and a lot of newcomers to, to the sport and they don't all stick around. But but that high watermark leaves you a new standard. And, and, and even when things, you know, the glow of the tournament recedes, you get um, a lot of excitement, a lot of new interest in the sport. And so I think that's we're definitely seeing that happen in real time. Um my experience on on site um, was a little more complicated, a little more complex, and uh, you know we can unpack it. I think in the, you know, in the next uh, uh, thirty minutes or whatever it may be. But um, I think there's a little more nuance there. Um, but you know, it's it's definitely hard to resist the, the product as we've all experienced. Yeah, well, that's great. It seems like three, three as a spectator, as a reporter, and then as a, as a television fan, you've got it all covered here. And while you were there, did you feel you were being monitored in um, Qatar as you were reporting? And how did it affect your reporting? Uh, yes. I mean, I will start by saying, um, you know, my the sites that I was working for 
Um, we're not exclusively focused on on the on-field action, but that was the, the main focus. I was there as a soccer reporter first and foremost. So I had neither the um, assignments or the, the bandwidth to delve uh, as fully into the, the big questions, the big, um, I, I guess, flashpoints of this tournament and Qatar as a whole in terms of um, you know, there were reporters who went much further than me, who went out into the hinterlands and and experienced the uh, migrant workers' conditions and their day-to-day reality and interacted more with them. And so I was spending more time um, just sort of by the nature of my assignments within this FIFA bubble. And the, the one metaphor I found myself using a lot is that um, Qatar itself, uh, and I'm, I'm using the, I guess I should say too, I did learn... Uh, that you know, we sort of all pronounce the country wrong. Um, Qatar is technically uh, the way to say it correctly in Arabic, and I, uh, I learned that the sounds involved are not sounds that the, that our, our Western languages uh, tend to have. So, um, so I, I should, guess I should just note that uh, that was a, a fun part of the experience. Uh, simply learning that you know the, the country is so complex in so many ways and so different from the United States that. Um, that even the, the act of saying its name um, has these layers to it. Uh, and there were layers to the culture, layers to the experience. And Qatar felt like a little bit like a bubble in the sense that you have this extremely wealthy um, place sitting on one of the largest uh, natural gas fields on earth uh, that has one of the highest per capita incomes, has one of the highest carbon footprints, um, is, um, you know, the, the native population is a minority. I don't know that I actually ever met, if I met any native Qataris there, I, I didn't know it. Um, oh, wow. The vast majority of the population have, are expats or migrant workers. And, and so there's a, sort of a, um, you know, distinct sense of, um, of something, um, uh, of being in a little bit of a bubble there as a, as a Westerner there, and then seeing sort of this great leap forward that this nation is, uh, is attempting to, to pull off, um, to do things that, that, other societies have done in hundreds of years and they want to do it in, you know, um, dozens of years or, or, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you go to a FIFA event, and this is my second now, and comparing it now to my time uh, working at the World Cup, the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, I've learned now um, when you go to any FIFA event, you are entering a different sort of bubble. So anywhere FIFA goes and sets up their facilities, their stadiums, their media centers, you, you are entering a different phase of sort of, sort of reality. And so there was this sort of double bubble uh, effect that was uh, a little surreal at times. It was very interesting. Um, but I spent a lot of time in those FIFA environments and those are inherently contrived. Um, it's part of the show, you know, um, and, and it's just sort of a different refraction of what you're seeing on television at home. Um, so I, I wish that I had had um, a less rigorous schedule to just sort of wander around and get outside of the, 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 these bubbles and, and this, in particular the tournament grind and everything. So there, you know, there's some, I think I left meat on the bone there. And, uh, but in general, uh, it was very much, I think you're very much conscious that you're in a, um, you're in a surveillance state. Um, and this is not limited to, to Qatar. This is an increasingly modern governance thing um, that you get in certain places in the U.S. more than others, um, but a, a, a lot of use of surveillance technology, um, CCTV cameras, security cameras everywhere. Um, I think I had a clear sense that, and, and the security around the FIFA facilities and uh, anywhere the World Cup events are happening was enormous. I mean, just the sheer manpower. Um, oh, there were these sort of um, black with 
blue and red trim security uniforms. And they were just, it felt like twice or three times as many as were needed um, anywhere you went, you know, it was just an overwhelming security presence. And um, every trip into a stadium or into the media center or another facility like that was um, the equivalent of so sort of felt like going to an airport um, oh. through a metal detector. Um, I'm sorry, I'm dog sitting. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, you're, you're, you're going to a metal detector, your stuff is being searched with varying degrees of intensity. Um, and then the last thing I guess I would say on this front is that there's a, um, there's definitely a little bit of a cult of personality, I think in terms of the, uh, the Emir and the Royal family um, that you would see these images of uh, Altani, the, the Emir, the, the head of the government. And this is a, you know, hereditary monarchy, mm-hmm. which has very little in the way of um, pluralistic or democratic institutions. Um, but the, his, his, like during the blockades, you know, in, the, in uh, they've been at sort of varying stages of conflict and rivalry with Saudi Arabia and other regional counterparts slash rivals in Qatar. And, and um, they were, they were, there was a regional blockade that lasted several years. And, um, and during that time, I guess this, this sort of stylized image of the Emir became very popular and became this sort of um, signpost of national pride. And you see it everywhere. It was on that he was his, this sort of stylized profile of the Emir was on a side of a building, or it might be on a bumper sticker on a car uh-huh. or on the, on the top of a skyscraper. Um, and so you got, I think I got little senses there of the, um, you know, the, the, the very different way of, of governance and the very different relationship that the government has with its citizens there. Oh, wow. Had to be incredibly interesting above and beyond all the World Cup. Did you feel in, you were talking about these bubbles, so that um, where you were, that Qatar was addressing the, the human rights issues and the other concerns that um, kind of followed or this World Cup perhaps created? I think um, I think that there was above and above and beyond uh, overall f- for the for the government and the Supreme Committee, which is the the, the sort of quasi government entity that was overseeing the, the tournament itself. Um, they were clearly eager to put their best foot forward to have the world, um, you know, they knew they had the world's attention in a way that nothing else can do. You know, the Olympics and the world. World Cup are right up there, right? And there's very little that can match the sheer volume of eyeballs around the globe. And they were very conscious of, of that opportunity and the desire to put Cutter in the conversation in any way possible, but ideally in the most um, positive way and the most compelling way. And to make this, um, you know, not just a place that, that in their words, in, in widespread Qatari opinions, this was the best World Cup ever. And that's, you know, we made that happen and yeah. we welcomed the world. Um, but they they want to be, uh, you know, they wanted, they were very, very um, resentful, I think, in a lot of ways. And I know this is a generalization, but in, just in speaking in terms of like what you would get in local media or how officials would respond. I mean, there was a worker death uh, at one of the training sites, at the Saudi Arabian training site during the tournament. And it took days for it to get dug up by by you know members of the i think it was the uk the athletics uk staff um adam crafton did some uh, incredible reporting while he was there and uh, as well as many others but when this news comes out that a worker had actually died on site um, where a team was was headquartered was training um, the initial reaction from um you know one of the the top tournament officials was was 
anger that this was the first question being asked to him, right? So why, you know, we're having the World Cup. Um, why would this this death, this death, death is natural part of life? And, and he made some really um, tone deaf quotes, at least again, and from my perspective and probably from the, the perspective of many abroad, um, where it was just, it, it felt like, um, you know, there was so much national identity riding on this and so much of a backlash towards um, towards any questioning of the the narratives that 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 the host country wanted to to dominate, and that included LGBTQA rights and a number of other topics where it was sort of like and and, and it's it becomes again there's layers of reality here because these this government um, ha, has a do- documented track record of using um, social media campaigns uh, sort of fo- of seeding. Um, uh, attacking people on social media who were perceived to be, uh, you know, against them or producing reporting or, or narratives that, that were uh, unflattering or undesirable to Cutter. So, um, so I think it was, it was, it's very hard too, because there's, um, there is also, you know, probably some, um, some racism and some old sort of fashion ideas and some outmoded thinking that, that colored some of the analysis of the tournament in the country and it became very difficult to draw the right line and to have the conversation that was constructive, I think. Um, but I, but I think it was, um, I think definitely there were, there were, uh, sincere attempts were made in, in that regard. And, um, as I said, you know, in our previous chat, uh, my hope is that, that this becomes more the norm because I think we're in a new era, uh, in which big time sporting events are inevitably going to be politicized to some extent. And that will, that will be even more so the case in a different context when it comes here to North America. And we should be prepared to have that spotlight on us as a society, as nations, as, um, you know, as cultures and governments. And I, I think um, while it was a little bit unsightly and continues to be a difficult topic to, yeah. to uh, navigate, I think in the big picture, we, we just have to acknowledge that the, the world is changing in this regard. Right. And be prepared for it. And, you know, you touched on a couple um, t- topics there that made me think um, of, I know that you suffered a great loss of a dear friend, Grant Wall, and um, I do extend my sincere sympathy. I'm t- truly sorry for, 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 you, for your loss. Could you, you know, perhaps give us an idea how this is affecting the um, soccer journalist community? It, from all I've heard, he was an incredibly... Um, credible man who was incredibly beloved by this community. Yes. And first of all, thank you for that. And uh, I know it, it means a lot to me and, and to the many people, incredible numbers of people who interacted with Grant or, or were touched by him in some way uh, over his career. And yeah, I mean, th- this was in many ways the standard bearer, I think, uh, one of the leading standard bearers, one of the the brightest um, voices in the industry speaking about, you know, soccer media in general globally he had entered that that international level that multinational sort of tier of mm-hmm. of um popularity and respect um, but he was above all an american soccer journalist and um you know it's a a small but growing segment of the the, the media landscape and he was did as much as anyone did to um to put it on the map and to grow it and he helped a lot of careers get started um i you know even my um interactions with him early on in my career as a full-time uh, soccer journalist were, you know, 
when I look back on them, it was um, influential, you know, setting just um, having an inclusive mindset, um, encouraging people to, 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 to follow their passion and follow, you know, um, examples set by people like him into the field and, um, and to try and, uh, and grow the game, you know, and we talk about a lot in American soccer about growing the game and it's a little bit of an unused or an overused, uh, uh, cliche sometimes, but, but it really applied here because Grant Wall was, um, incredibly consistent and persistent about trying to grow that sphere. Um, even though he didn't have to, you know, having been, uh, one of the first, uh, to, to sort of, uh, make us make a, a name, make a reputation and a sustainable living in, in the industry. Um, you know, not many, not everyone follows the path that he did to, to bring others along, but I think that's his legacy. Um, alongside the, the incredible work he did for, you know, more than two decades, somewhere, somewhere north of a quarter century. That, that's, that's amazing. And it's a wonderful legacy and a tribute. Um, and in addition to that remarkable legacy, um, by all accounts, he was a champion for several causes. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned the LGBTQ um, experience you had there, and he seemed to make a statement. Uh, do you think his loss will inspire others to pick up the baton and uh, for the causes that Grant was so passionate about? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think he uh, evolved in a really um, impressive way as, as uh, of his voice and his uh, attitude towards these things, because I think during the time that, that Grant's been at the top of, of the field, um, the the scope and, and the range of conversations we're having have become broader, right? And we've become the, the importance of having uh, diversity of voices and diversity of backgrounds uh, and re recognizing the personal um, perspectives of, of everyone, you know, the, the old sort of Cronkite era idea of this uh, robotic dispassionate observer, I think has faded a bit and and Grant I think was uh, when I look back I didn't really think of it at the time but I mean there was an there was a bravery and uh, an elegance and a risk that he took to um, to allow himself to be you know part of the story at times I mean to I think his experience um, his brother is is a member of that community of the LGBTQ community and um, how could it not affect your perspective as a human being you know going to a country where homosexuality is is effectively criminalized. Yeah. Um, how could it, how could your your brother's um, relationship with you and his experiences not uh, you know be part of your your toolkit that you take to that environment? And so you know I was at the stadium I believe it was at Ahmed bin Ali Stadium uh, where he was where Grant was detained for having a a, a, a really innocent shirt with a soccer ball and a rainbow yeah. around it um, and it was um, and and you know was threatened and and. Uh, you know, got a, had some negative interactions with security. And, um, you know, that, that I think became a flashpoint in a way that, um, you know, I think from what we hear, it, it inspired death threats to Grant himself. Um, it also, I think, made the reality on the ground more tactile and more, more urgent and understandable um, for everyone involved. And uh, there was, and his, his um, you know, he made tr previous trips spent significant time um, taking real risks um, without, I should say, the the backing and the protection of a large media entity 
you know, that that most journalists in his position would have. I mean, he's he's reporting for GrantWall.com and he's going out of his way to try and have honest conversations with migrant workers about their experiences in Qatar. Um, again, I, I was impressed with it at the time. And then, you know, when you look back and, and having been there, um, you know, the bravery of that and the empathy that was involved in that was really, really inspiring. And I think that's, um, you know, that's that's a huge part of uh, of Grant's legacy and his in his final days of work. And, and he was working right up to the end. And um, sadly, I can also relate a little bit to the conditions that seem to seem to um, play a role in his passing because um, it was an exhausting environment. Uh, there were so many, because of television times around the world, there were so many big games that took place, including all the uh, or three of the four U.S. Uh, games at the World Cup were 10 p.m. local time kickoffs. So a night like that, you would be routinely working until four or five, six in the morning sometimes. <clears throat> and uh, and I, I will always wonder, even though it seems that, he, that there was a heart condition that was developing without anyone's notice, um, I'll always wonder how the grind of this tournament in particular played a, a role. I can't, I can't help um, but think about that, you know, and getting ready to go to his memorial service in a couple of days here. And, um, you know, I think um, I'm thankful that, that um, his wife, Celine and, and their family, you know, re released further information that suggests there was, that seemed to conclusively prove there was no, nothing nefarious or any foul play involved in his passing, despite the circumstances that sort of raised questions. Uh, but it's, um, you know, it can be a very, it can be a real grind and um, he embraced that grind throughout his career. Um, but in particular in this tournament, it was, uh, it was difficult. And uh, his, his work rate was up to the very end, just incredible. That, that's amazing. Sounds like such an incredible man of integrity and character and willing to take a stand where others might take a seat, especially when you're out in the public and, um, you know, trying to, make your living on, on your name. And it's pretty admirable to take such a stand on behalf of many who don't get the chance. So, um, you know, you had mentioned, I was going to say the, the, um, the last game, the final was a thrilling affair, as, as you alluded to, um, maybe the uh, best match ever played at the World Cup. Um, but are there any other highlights or do you want to talk about, you know, the final and, um, how would it be the lasting image of this particular tournament? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, again, you know, the <clears throat> the power of this sport and this event in particular is, um, you know, you, you watch that game and and regardless of the uh, of your relationship to soccer in general, I think even even a newcomer could could find themselves um, wrapped, you know, in that in that moment and and the the drama of things and the the, the clear stakes the stadium atmosphere, you know, the Argentine fans in particular were incredible throughout the tournament, um, you know, paying ludicrously uh, high rates. And, you know, anecdotally, we're hearing of life savings being blown, you know, to, oh to get from Argentina to, to Doha to, to witness wow. this firsthand. Yeah. They were, you know, most of their games were in Lucille, which is one of the biggest stadiums in terms of capacity. Um, there were their, 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 their supporter culture was amazing. I think you got a great uh, illustration of it, a great snapshot in the final, even though the final is often a tougher ticket for average fans to get. Um, and, uh, oh my gosh, excuse me. And the, uh, 
the experience of uh, Leo Messi, you know, finishing his, as best we know, I mean, I, he's, he's, he has thankfully said he's not going to retire straight away from, from international play. Um, but for Messi to uh, to play what was likely his last World Cup match it, uh, on that stage, to step up the way he did, to, he's clearly inspired his entire team this, throughout this tournament and, and now a nation as well. Um, it, it's just the, the drama of it was incredible. And this is why nations and, and politicians and, and uh, companies and corporations want uh, to be part of it. They want to be connected to this event and this organization because it has this, uh, this power of this, the human spirit. And um, the final was incredibly, I, I have a number of other memories because, you know, my, my firsthand experiences were very, very vivid. Um, but man, you know, here we are on Monday. It's hard to talk about anything else, right? Uh, Argentina, France, Mbappe versus Messi. Um, just, uh, you know, just an in incredible occasion. Yeah, it was. I'm getting Chelsea hearing you talk. And like you said about um, the, the human spirit, it, it's amazing how it just felt like there is such a spirit worldwide that comes together over, over this. You, you'd almost hope you could bottle it and um, contain it for um you know, a bit longer than, than the event. It's kind of nice, maybe just before the holidays, to have kind of that hope of bonding, you know, through throughout. It's true. And, well, and I have to say, I mean, it's not, this, soccer is not the only sport that, that uh, brings people together. It's not the only uh, occasion. But I don't, I think it's, um, especially in the U.S., you know, it, it's probably never a bad idea for someone in my position to underline the near universality of it. You know, the, we all love consuming the, the Summer and Winter Olympics and we become, you know, curling experts for a few weeks, right, and dive into it and, and love yeah. that experience <laughs> and, and are, are unified by it. But soccer is just on a different plane in terms of the number of people to, who participate, um, the way it is passed down, the how deeply woven it is to so many cultures around the world. Um, it, it's it, There's just nothing else. And, you know, you'll see... Um, Today, there have been some social media posts making the round comparing it to, you know, what is our, our tentpole event on the U.S. sporting landscape? It tends to be uh, a Super Bowl that, that yeah. people point to. And it's something like four or five times the audience uh, yesterday for the World Cup final globally that, that the Super Bowl uh, draws. So it's always good to be reminded, I think, of our, our place in that, that cosmos. Yeah, no, totally. Because I was thinking about the Olympics too, but everybody has their favorite sport or whatever, but here you're all coming together. Charles, when we last spoke, we mentioned um, the what could possibly be the lasting legacy of this particular World Cup in um, Qatar. And I hope I'm saying it right because I did look it up and now, now I, but, but um, and you know, perhaps did you think the, uh, the country achieved their goals? These are great questions, um, and we could probably devote a, a, a whole episode just just to this particular uh, facet. And I'm I'm fascinated by it. And I think, um, as a sort of soft power exercise, I think it it has to have been an overall success for for the country and the government because, you know, the 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 quality on the field, the the, the engaging nature of the matches and the, the play was, yeah. um, you know is inevitably the focus, right? Because the the conversations off the field and around around the tournament are inherently more subjective and just don't draw the sort of, um, no, you know, volume of, of attention that the games themselves do. Um, and I think you have to look at the way they, um, the way they asserted 
um, what, what to me was, I think, the, the one of the sort of fundamental, more objective qualms that you could have about Cutter's management and hosting was that um, this is a government that um, that's a it's a hereditary monarchy. There's there's not really, at least, it wasn't to me clear uh, accountability, um, and so transparency and and um, accountability are not necessarily inherent to that system. And um, certainly that's not the only place in the world where that applies. But, you know, for example, um, yanking beer sales uh, out of the, the, the planned locations in and around stadiums a matter of days before the tournament started, that conversation came to be dominated by um, sort of the question of alcohol and do we really need alcohol? Well, it, that's not actually the, the deeper point or the more, to me, the more fundamental point was uh, agreements that were set up years in advance were changed at the at the eleventh hour by the whims of the the local government, um, and then to see similar things happen when it came to um, even just the act. I thought it, there's a fascinating conversation happening today around uh, the trophy ceremony, which was you know unfortunately American viewers had to change over to a different network because oh, Fox, uh, in its wisdom, uh, left the uh, you know the NFL slot on the main Fox channel, and you had to switch over to FS1 to watch the, the trophy ceremony. But being that what it what it is, um, the emir of Qatar um, garbed Leo Messi in a bish, a, 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 a sort of regional piece of garb, a sort of robe that is an honor within Arab culture and a pan-Arabic sort of gesture of respect and and um, an achievement to Leo Messi, um, which in a vacuum is is um, is is a cool little cultural quirk, right? But this was happening on international television in direct violation of the FIFA statutes that FIFA did not hesitate to wield against players or teams who wanted to make what would have been also been interesting and mostly harmless um, and certainly not disruptive gestures in support of human rights or, or tolerance. And so the, um, the, the inconsistency with which FIFA was applying in uh, its own regulations I think was the deeper point. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it became clear to me with incidents like that and, and that, that FIFA was not necessarily in charge the way that they normally are. Where normally wherever they go, they are setting up their own sort of little fiefdom for a few yeah. weeks or, or for a month and, and their norms apply there. Um, that's how they can shelter themselves from, you know, having to pay taxes. They don't have to pay taxes to the to the host nations for example right there's so much power they wield in their own interests but in this case i think it became clear that cutter was you know applying its own sort of ideas of what it considered right in a way that was not consistent with past tournaments or what was expected so i think that's the the deeper issue though i, I think in a more positive sense um, it was inspiring for me to see the value and the power of um, anytime the, one of these events is held outside of the traditional power centers, and these are soccer's historic power centers and the economic power centers of the sport and, and our society in general, which is Europe and uh, and the soccer context, South America. So there was this was clearly a more accessible event for people from sub-Saharan Africa, from the Arab world, um, throughout the Middle East and from South Asia. Um, and so, you know, to see, for example, legions of Argentina fans, clad in the blue and white Argentina jerseys, but they are from India or Pakistan or Bangladesh. And for them, with their nations not necessarily being soccer powers, they're consuming 
this sport through their adulation for Messi in Argentina. And that was just, that was really cool. I thought um, that was an example of this, this event and this location um, breaking new ground or, or showing a new facet of the game and it's, and it's, uh, it's devotees. So, um, and I think again, even the, even the contentious aspects of the conversation or the, the dialogue about, uh, about migrant workers and, and LGBTQ rights uh, I think that we can apply we can apply some of the lessons from this going forward. And again, I think um, we're now in a time where the idea of separating politics and soccer, to me, is more outmoded and unrealistic than ever. Um, if it ever made sense, it certainly does not anymore in the 21st century that we're living in. And so let's just embrace that and and let's 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 look at accountability and let's take a broader lens. That's that's great. We. We we'll appreciate your insights, and it has been um, a pleasure to have you here. I am so thrilled that you uh, came back to speak with us as you invitation. It's truly been a pleasure, um, Charles. Um, I'm so sorry for my my house guests. Many interruptions. <laughs> That's okay. It, it's worth it. Everybody has their say into it. But Charles Bohm, thank you so much, and um, thanks to everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed the conversation, please give us a like and subscribe to our channel. Charles, you're always welcome. Thank you so much, Karen. It's been a privilege and a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. Hope to see you next time, everyone.